Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Does the FBI have documents about criminal misconduct by President Biden? Two top Republicans say they do and are demanding answers. We have reaction from Capitol Hill. Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas visiting the border. We hear from both Republican and Democrat strategists for their take on the border crisis. A new poll finds that nearly half of Americans are nervous about the safety of their money in their bank accounts. As yet another bank is seeking buyers, we talk with an economist to find out what people are afraid of. A U.S. Marine veteran has reportedly choked a subway passenger to death. Witnesses say the passenger was acting unruly. And the jury reaches a verdict in the trial of British singer Ed Sheeran. Find out what they concluded about whether Sharon copied from Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Two top Republicans are demanding that the FBI turn over documents related to President Biden that a whistleblower says they have. The unnamed whistleblower claims the documents show Biden was involved in a criminal scheme when he was vice president. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more details and reactions from senators on Capitol Hill. So these Republicans want something very specific from the FBI in unredacted form, all FD-1023 documents that contain the word Biden. The GOP lawmakers claim that the DOJ and FBI have documents that allege a criminal scheme between then-Vice President Biden and a foreign national involving an exchange of money for policy decisions. The information came from a whistleblower that lawmakers claim is credible. Senator Chuck Grassley now saying the ball is in the FBI's court had the information from credible sources of whistleblowers in the FBI and uh, and that's the basis for it and now it's up to the FBI to produce the information. Grassley and Comer say it's unclear whether the DOJ or FBI ever took steps to investigate this matter and other Republicans are expressing support for this effort. Senator Roger Marshall telling me the FBI has already discredited itself watch. Uh, they don't do things just for fun or for political reasons. I think that they've investigated the situation enough to know that there is indeed something there. Do you think them subpoenaing the FBI makes Americans not trust the agency? You know, I think the FBI has done a significant amount of damage to their own reputation. And that being said, the rank and file FBI uh, agents that I met are incredible people. But I am very concerned. I think America is very concerned about the top of the FBI and some of that leadership that they have become a, a very politi politicized. Although Democrats have cast doubt on the legitimacy of the information from the whistleblower. Representative Jamie Raskin, who's a ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, described the GOP's investigation as a political stunt, saying, it's no surprise that Comer would rely on these unverified tips to attack President Biden. But a Democrat senator I spoke with earlier had a more mild approach. Watch. Um, they seem to coincide with elections. Whistleblowers must be taken seriously in the country. Um, but with that comes immense responsibility as well to conduct uh, an honest, transparent, open conversation with the American people getting to the bottom of things. And this subpoena is in addition to the GOP-led ongoing investigations into the Biden family. The House Oversight Committee has revealed a deal in which the Biden family has received $1 million from a Chinese company through a third party. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And looking abroad, a sharp denial. 
The White House says it had nothing to do with the alleged drone that exploded over the Kremlin. NTD's Iris Tao has more on what Moscow and Washington are saying. Russia on Thursday blamed the U.S. for an alleged drone attack on the Kremlin. But the White House gives a straight denial, calling Moscow's claims lies. Watch. One thing I can tell you for certain is that the United States was not involved in this incident in any way contrary to Mr. Peskov's lies. And that's what they are, just lies. With videos online appearing to show a drone exploding over the Kremlin, Moscow on Wednesday first accused Ukraine of launching the purported attack in an attempt to assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin, who was reportedly not in the building at the time. And on Thursday, the Kremlin accused Washington of determining the targets of the attack. But both the U.S. and Ukraine have denied having anything to do with the strikes. So it perfectly fits in his frame, uh, the framing that President Putin has tried to label this, uh, this uh, war as, uh, like it was some sort of existential threat to Mother Russia, and of course it's not. And the latest back and forth comes as the U.S. intelligence chief says Russia is unlikely to be able to launch a major attack this year. Russian forces are facing significant shortfalls in munitions and are under significant personnel constraints. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. Turning to the border, U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is visiting the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of the end of the pandemic-era health policy Title 42. Officials are expecting a massive surge in illegal immigrants when that happens. We'll take a look at Mayorkas's move and what else can be done to deal with the surge. Earlier today, I spoke with Robert Patillo, a Democratic strategist, civil rights attorney, and former Democratic State House candidate, for his analysis. Robert Pratillo, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Now, Mayorkas is visiting the U.S.-Mexico border today and tomorrow. He's expected to review the uh, you know, law enforcement's Title 42 response plans. What's significant about that, do you think, and what do you expect to come of it? I, I don't expect very much to come up there. This is very much performative. Uh, as, it's not as if the uh, immigration secretary has much power to actually change what the U.S. laws are now. Uh, they can only plan for what is anticipated to be a, a rush of individuals uh, who have been, in some cases, waiting as much as two to three years for the opportunity to make an asylum claim in here in the United States of America. I'm hoping that Secretary Mayorkas makes the uh, case again to Congress that we have to have comprehensive immigration reform of such a nature that will try to solve this problem, if not just ameliorate it. Uh, we've been attempting to do this for 40 years in America. We have not done so. I think this is a time above all, uh, all others when Republicans and Democrats have to come together and pass a big comprehensive immigration reform law that will prevent this problem in the future. We've had the same deal on the table in various forms for over a decade at this point in time. Kevin McCarthy will be introducing the Republican plan for uh, immigration that, very similar to the budget, is dead on arrival. The parties have to get together, uh, put their heads together and actually hammer out an agreement that will be able to pass both the conservative House, the uh, Democratic Senate, and go into law, because otherwise we're passing this off to our state and local governments that simply cannot handle it. What do you think needs to change to cause that kind of um, cooperation? 
if the images of thousands of people trying to become Americans is not enough to motivate our Congress to uh, put together a package to help these individuals, I don't know what uh, could be. Uh, we have a giant statue in uh, New York Harbor that says, bring us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. That is what we are seeing at our southern border. And we have to live up to our creed, live up to our uh, what we tell people we are as being that shining city on the hill. If we're going to do so, this is the time to do exactly that. I'm hoping we'll see Republicans and Democrats able to compromise and come together on that to reform. All right, Robert Patillo, thanks so much for coming on our show. Great to have you on. Thank you. Anytime. And weighing in with his experience, Victor Avila, a retired special agent with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and author of Agent Under Fire. He's also a congressional candidate for Texas's 23rd District, and I also spoke with him earlier today. Victor Avila, welcome to our show. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. Now, you're down at El Paso on the border. You've been out there seeing what's going on. We're seeing a surge of migrants already ahead of the end of Title 42. Could you tell us more about what you're seeing? Absolutely. I've been here all week. And let me tell you, uh, I'm born and raised in El Paso, Texas, and worked a lot of my law enforcement career in this town. And I didn't recognize it. Uh, there's thousands of people in downtown El Paso lining the streets on the sidewalk, what they're trying, they're trying to seek sanctuary at one of the churches down there, but it's already expanded beyond the, the, the block radius of the church. And uh, it really is chaotic and, and it's really inhumane how the people uh, have been placed in these conditions because of the open border policy. I talked to a lot of the migrants and they've gone through some treacherous, treacherous journeys. I can't even share that, they're very graphic, but I just am here to tell you, um, they've been victimized, but because of the open border system. What do you think needs to change to create some kind of solution going forward, you know, bringing both sides together? Because you seem to be in a deadlock. It really is. And uh, right now there's a big bill uh, on Capitol Hill to address uh, just that. It started off as H.R. 29, Chip, uh, uh, Congressman Chip Roy's bill. Now I think it's been absorbed into H.R. 2. Um, uh, it's a good bill, but it, it's a bill that helps secure the border. You can't help these people unless you secure the border. We need to allow people to come to this country uh, the legal way, and a lot of it is to shift the burden back to those host countries, those home countries. Let them come back and deal with their individuals and their citizens first. Great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much, Victor Avila. Thank you for having me. Speaking of national security, the Biden administration is proposing tighter controls over foreign land purchases near U.S. military bases. They're adding eight military installations to the list for national security review. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is a federal panel that reviews foreign acquisitions for national security risks. This latest move is to expand the jurisdiction of the panel to cover land purchases within a 100-mile radius of the bases. The eight additional military installations are in Palmdale, California, Box Elder, South Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, Des Moines, Iowa, Abilene, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, Del Rio, Texas, and Glendale, Arizona. The latest federal proposal comes as land purchases by foreign adversaries, especially China, have been an increasing concern for both government officials and the general public. And meanwhile, right outside of our nation's capital, Bernie Sanders is back in the spotlight. 
He's once again calling to raise the nation's minimum wage. NTD's Sam Wong has more. It is time to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. On Thursday, Senator Bernie Sanders held a press conference on Capitol Hill, joined by workers and union leaders. He proposed a plan to raise the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour, $2 higher than what the White House and many Democrats are pushing for. The senator claimed that $15 would not suffice in 2023 due to inflation. Worth noting, the current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, an amount Sanders says has not changed since 2007. He said his Senate committee will mark up the bill on June 14th and then push it to the Senate floor. Opponents said wage hikes can be detrimental to small businesses, which were already dealt a major blow during the COVID-19 pandemic. Liam Cosgrove, a journalist at the Epic Times, questioned Sanders' proposal. But you're increasing the cost of business for the small burger shops, whereas McDonald's <laughs> well, can handle that. We're not increasing the cost of business. When these people are able to earn a living wage, you know what, maybe they're going to be able to go out and buy a damn hamburger. <laughs> As of now, a number of states have passed legislation that will bump up their current minimum wage in the next few years. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. If you're concerned about the safety of your money in the bank, you're not alone. According to a new Gallup poll, nearly half of Americans say they're concerned about the money they have in financial institutions. 19% are very worried and another 29% are moderately worried. These findings are similar to 2008 when Gallup last surveyed this question during the global financial crisis. Despite a string of bank failures in recent weeks, U.S. officials say the industry overall remains strong. But it does seem that U.S. banking woes are not behind us just yet. The spotlight is now on Bank Pacific Western Bank and Western Alliance Bancorp and the latest banking sector turmoil. Here's NTD's Don Ma with more details. All right, thanks, Steph. Regional banks, PacWest and Western Alliance Bank Corp stocks are plunging. So here to talk to me about this is Daniel Lakai, chief economist at Tresses Hedge Fund. Now, Daniel, to start off, what's happening here? What is happening, unfortunately, is very clear, is that the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and the First Republic collapse uh, were not sold, that the Federal Reserve, the messages coming from consensus, etc., uh, saying that everything was under control and that the liquidity injections would help regional banks sort out their position, actually uh, were messages that were very optimistic, but very far away from the mark. So my understanding is that this happened, their stocks plunging after talks of potential, a potential sale in part or whole of these banks. Now, what does this tell us? Well, it basically tells us that the uh, equity value of a bank is something that is very, very difficult to gauge. It's, it's very difficult at the end of the day to think that uh, the message that we've heard many, many times in the stock market from investors and from analysts saying that banks are always very cheap, valuations are very low. Well, when liquidation starts to be an issue, most people find out that valuations are much lower when liquidation starts than the um, aggressively uh, conservative uh, estimates of some uh, investment bankers or analysts. What are people afraid of, to put it very simply? 
Well, I think that what people are afraid of is that uh, if the bank enters into financial difficulties, deposits are not going to be made whole. In fear that if there was a domino effect of the Silicon Valley Bank versus Republic situation, they would see a, a very significant proportion of their deposits, the deposits lost. Yeah, I, I think uh, you make some great points. Thank you so much for talking with me, Daniel, today. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Don. Turning to artificial intelligence now, the White House is announcing new measures on the technology. This comes after Vice President Kamala Harris met with tech CEOs earlier today. The White House is planning policies to shape how federal agencies procure and use AI systems. The step could significantly influence the market for AI products, and it could control how Americans interact with AI on government websites, at security checkpoints, and in other settings. The National Science Foundation will also spend $140 million to promote research and development in AI. Harris and other Biden administration officials met today with the CEOs of Google, Microsoft, ChatGPT creator OpenAI, and Anthropic. Harris said in a statement after the meeting, quote, advances in technology, including the challenges posed by AI, are complex. Government, private companies, and others in society must tackle these challenges together. In Georgia, elections offices are no longer allowed to accept private funding. Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill today that closes a loophole in the law. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill on Wednesday that seems to be an effort to block major Democrat donors from affecting how elections are run. The bill requires that all costs and expenses relating to election administration are paid for with lawfully appropriate public funds. It prohibits certain local governments and persons from soliciting or accepting donations or other things of value to support the performance of election administration. Former Republican U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler attended the signing and applauded the new law. In a Twitter post, she said, grateful to the conservative lawmakers who championed this law and proud of my team at Greater Georgia who have led the fight to end Zuckerbucks in our state. Loeffler and her group Greater Georgia called for an investigation after the Democrat stronghold DeKalb County in January unanimously voted to accept a $2 million grant from an arm of the Center for Tech and Civic Life, a national nonprofit that has backing from Facebook and its founder, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, I make a motion that this item be approved. Did you have a substitute coming? So we just need to make sure that substitute is included in the motion. In a February statement, Greater Georgia said that in 2020, CTCL partnered with Mark Zuckerberg to funnel $45 million into Georgia in mostly blue counties ahead of the election, boosting turnout in Democratic counties. According to the statement, Georgia lawmakers in 2021 had banned election offices from accepting outside money. But it states that DeKalb County Board of Elections Chair Del Loman-Smith and the county found a way to skirt the law. Smith told Decaturish.com in January that since election offices are not allowed to receive grants directly, the lengthy application process was led by the county's finance department. So far, we haven't gotten the Election Commission's response to this latest law. But in February, the county's attorney, Viviane Ernestis, responded to Loeffler's call for an investigation. She told Decaturish.com that Smith wasn't the right person to talk to about the application process. 
Ernestus confirmed that her staff reviewed the grant to ensure that it complied with the law. And she said, quote, I have looked at it and I believe that it is legally viable, legally defensible. And she also said that the grant process was handled by the County Finance Department. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Coming up, a subway passenger in New York puts another rider in a chokehold, ultimately killing him. Find out what witnesses say about how it happened. And a jury rules on British singer Ed Sheeran. He was accused of copying a song by Marvin Gaye. See how the pop star reacts coming out of the courthouse today. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Tragic incident in New York City. A United States Marine veteran choked a subway passenger to death. Witnesses say the passenger was unruly and acted aggressively. NTD's Jason Perry has the story and a warning now. This report contains video footage that some viewers may find disturbing. I'm here in New York City next to the subway station where a Marine veteran reportedly choked to death an unruly passenger. A witness explained what the passenger did. He interrupted in the train and then started to yell in um, violence, language. Um, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go into jail. Um, I don't have any food. I don't have any beverage. Um, I'm done. And that's around the time a Marine veteran and two other men intervened. As seen in this video from Wednesday, the Marine veteran wearing a tan jacket has that passenger in a chokehold from behind. Two other men nearby appear to be there to help restrain the passenger, who was later identified as Jordan Neely. He was known for impersonating Michael Jackson, as seen in this video from about 10 years ago. A witness said the Marine veteran had Neely in a chokehold for seven or eight minutes, while others have said it was for 15 minutes. Neely died from that chokehold, according to the office of the chief medical examiner, which also ruled that his death was a homicide. The veteran, whose name has not been released, was questioned by police and was released, according to local media reports. Protesters voiced their frustration at that subway station and hit the streets of New York City. On the other hand, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said this about the incident. Each situation is different. I was a former transit police officer, and I responded to many jobs where you had a passenger assisted someone. And so we cannot just blankly say, blankly say what a passenger should or should not do in a situation like that. We should allow the investigation to take its course. So what's the best course of action when encountering an erratic or unruly passenger? I asked some people walking by. I usually switch cars <laughs> or get off. It's always about situational awareness. You know, like I see people come in, grab a seat and jump into their cell phone and they're alien to everything that's going on around you. Not necessarily the wisest course of action. Um, I have to feel out the situation because I recognize that sometimes hey ignoring makes it worse. Walk away. Why is that the best thing to do? It diffuses the situation. 
A spokesperson for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office said the investigation will be handled by senior prosecutors. He also said they'll give an update when there's additional information to share with the public. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. And we'll keep you updated as that story develops. But also in New York today, a jury weighed in on singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran. They concluded that he didn't copy his song from Marvin Gaye. Sheeran spoke to reporters after leaving the courthouse. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. We've spent the last eight years talking about two songs with dramatically different lyrics, melodies, and four chords, which are also different and used by songwriters every day all over the world. The trial took two weeks and featured a courtroom performance by Sheeran. The jury ruled that Sheeran didn't steal key components of Marvin Gaye's 1970s tune, Let's Get It On, when he created his hit song, Thinking Out Loud. The heirs of songwriter Ed Townsend, who co-created Marvin Gaye's song, sued Sheeran. They said Thinking Out Loud had so many similarities to Let's Get It On that it violated the song's copyright protection. During the trial, Sheeran insisted that the copyright claim was a threat to all musicians who write their own songs. Sheeran's song, which came out in 2014, was a hit, winning a Grammy for Song of the Year. And today is Star Wars Day. It falls on May 4th every year. And if you're wondering why, say these words out loud. May the 4th be with you. See? So, what's the best way to celebrate one of the most well-loved movie franchises in history? Here's some ideas. You can grab some popcorn and binge the many Star Wars films that have been produced, or the TV and streaming spin-offs, or you could relax and enjoy the memorable film scores. But that's not the only special occasion today. It's also the National Day of Prayer, when Americans are encouraged to take some time for spiritual reflection. That's all for now, but we do love to hear from you, so please reach out via email if you have any thoughts or feedback to share. I'm Stephanie Cox. From all of us here at NTD, please take care and have a good evening.